Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. God is indeed high and lifted up. He is holy, as we have been confessing, and so we call, uh, God calls us to confess our sins as we enter his presence. We have the text of the call to confession printed, as well as the prayer that we'll be uh, praying in unison together as we kneel this morning. Hear God's word from James 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Thus far, the reading of God's word. In the message today, we'll see John the Baptist's disciples uh, jealous for his popularity. And James tells us that jealousy brings disorder and drama. It likes to hide its selfishness. Jealousy likes to appeal to fairness and to steal peace from relationships. And this is not heavenly wisdom, James tells us. This is not the fruit of the Spirit. When we have stamped out jealousy and selfish ambition, what is left is gentleness and a willingness to be persuaded by the other's point of view, mercy and sincerity and peace. So let's confess our sins before Almighty God. Spurgeon is known for his great preaching to huge crowds. Charles Spurgeon is often known as the cigar-smoking Baptist. (laughs) His bouts with depression are also fairly well known. Uh, What we know a bit less about is his self-confessed pride. I had occasion to read recently in his diary, and he writes this, Pride is yet my darling sin. I cannot shake it off. Oh, may I be kept humble. Pride dwells in my heart. My pride is so infernal that there is not a man on earth who can hold it in. This is Spurgeon writing in his own journal. Now, pride comes out for different reasons in different people. Spurgeon tells us himself what made him proud. Here he is again. I will tell you when I have been afraid of pride. That is, when I have been in the middle of a fight... And he's talking about theological controversy there, those kind of fights. And everybody has abused me, including some of whom I have felt they were not worthy to be set among the dogs of the flock. I fear I have been proud then. Spurgeon dealt with pride. In our text here, John the Baptist's disciples, I believe, invite him to pride and to jealousy. But John the Baptist witnesses that Jesus far surpasses him. And when we rest content in our callings, like John did in his, 
when we speak of the greatness of Jesus, then we are exalting Christ. So the main point of the scripture text here that we were dealing with this morning is this. Jesus surpasses the Old Testament prophet John. Jesus surpasses him just as in previous chapters. Jesus surpasses Old Testament wine. He surpasses the temple. He surpasses physical birth, as we saw in the first half of chapter 3. Jesus is greater, and we're called to him. So let's consider these verses, verse by verse. We have jealousies or joy, if you see the sermon outline later on in the bulletin there. The jealousies or joy first, and then uh, several things again said about Jesus in the middle of this passage. And again, just an aside there, again, the Gospel of John is uh, simple. It, It has a very simple message, right? Jesus came from God. We need to believe in him. That's the summary of the Gospel of John. But there is often so much under the surface a lot of rich uh, teaching about uh, who Jesus is, and we'll see that in this passage again. And then we have the privilege or the peril in the last verse. So those three uh, sections or points this morning. So first of all, the disciples of John, they're beginning to resent Jesus' popularity. And they want John to, to resent it as well, it seems. All are going to him, they say. This is verse 26. Now, this is not a neutral comment. Right? It has, put it in uh, today's parlance, what's going on in the newspaper today. Right? It has more of the flavor of a presidential primary race, where Bernie Sanders staffers report to him, hey, Joe Biden's poll numbers are up. Everybody's going to him. That's not a neutral comment. That's bad news if you're on Sanders' side. John's disciples do not see this as a good thing. John is losing followers. John's a great prophet. They love John. They want more people to be listening to John. Well, what about John? Uh, R.C. Sproul uh, likes to give the little riddle and ask, who was the greatest Old Testament prophet? And after you get some answers, Elijah, Moses, whoever it might be, uh, R.C. will say, no, it's John the Baptist. He's like, what? Wait a minute. That's, that's not fair. He's in the New Testament. True, but John is the last prophet before Jesus. And Jesus makes that point himself. All have come before John, and John is, is the greatest of these prophets. John the Baptist is humble, even though he's popular, and he does not let others make him feel sorry for himself as his followers leave him and go to Jesus. That's fine. He's not jealous of others. Uh, He's uh, looking for Christ's exaltation. How does he guard against this? Uh, We see that in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. It fits with the 1 Corinthians 4 reading we had, right? Why do we boast if we confess that we've received what we have from God? Why would we boast about that then and be jealous about me having this but they having that? Well, we all receive what we have from the Lord. So that's how John is guarding against jealousy here. We only receive what we're given. I mentioned Richard Sibbs last time, the bruised reed. Here's another quote from there. He says, There's a certain meekness of spirit whereby we yield thanks to God for any ability at all. We rest quiet with the measure of grace received. We see it as God's good pleasure that it should be so. It's a great deal of contentment in that. Uh, But again, John's disciples here, they are discontent with the way things are going. 
people are leaving uh, our group. What do we do? Well, uh, be careful. We get discontent when we compare. And we need to learn to be content with our calling, with our vocation. Uh, We tend to envy other people, their jobs, their number of children, the size of their house, uh, on and on, whatever it may be. Uh, We need to learn contentment with what God has given. Now, to be content, of course, though, doesn't mean that you're lazy. John keeps on preaching, right? Jesus must increase. I must decrease, but that doesn't mean I decrease the workload necessarily. I have my calling. I have my work. Uh, But we rely on God uh, to dispose, dispense of circumstances. So so work hard at it with all your heart in your calling. Uh, Colossians 3.23 speaks of that. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Sometimes I think that's one of the most neglected verses uh, in our day, in our culture. Right? In, our, in our normal language with one another, isn't it true we're more prone to tell others, hey, don't work too hard, don't stress yourself out, take it easy, right? And workaholics do need to hear that, and people who overschedule their lives. But just as many of us struggle, I think, with laziness, with giving up when things get tough, work at it. John the Baptist is fulfilling his calling here. He's having this dispute, right, up in verse 25, a discussion uh, between John's disciples and a Jew. Again, there's, there's, there's a lot of activity going on here that's only hinted at in the wilderness with John as he's baptizing. They're not just baptizing. Here they're having a theological discussion about purification. So John is in his prophetic role, his calling, doing his work. John was fixed on Jesus. Uh, Continue on, verse 27, on to 28 and 29. I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Uh, So John is fixed on Jesus and oriented to him. And he uses this illustration of the best man at the wedding. Right? The one job of the best man at the wedding (laughs) is, is is to know where the groom is and to serve the groom. Maybe it's got something to do with the ring in our culture. But it's all about the bridegroom. The best man's there for him. It isn't your wedding, it's his. And John the Baptist knows that. John knows his job. He must increase, I must decrease. Uh, William Carey, the famous missionary to India, uh, said this. He said, when I am gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's savior. That's the idea here. So, will it be jealousy or joy for you? When a bride and groom stand in front at their wedding, they are a picture of Christ and his church. And just as John the Baptist was called to point to Jesus, so each of us are called to point to Jesus in some way. John's role was unique, of course. He's the forerunner, the last and greatest Old Testament prophet. But every calling, every vocation, it has some aspect that reflects Christ in some way. In Christ's provision for us, his compassion, his redemption. Uh, Luther even talks of, of us being Christ's hands. Uh, the, when, you, when, you're at, when you're the baker and you bake the bread in the morning, uh, you are providing through, God is providing through you in his providence. So John, uh, baptizing, he's showing the cleansing and repentance needed to enter the kingdom of God. Think of other Old Testament examples. This starts to make sense. Remember the story of Ruth and Boaz. Right? Boaz becomes a picture of Christ as our kinsman redeemer. And Boaz didn't 
uh, work the situation to become that, God in his providence made him be in that calling. David, as king, reflects Christ as king. Many examples of that in the Bible. But you also, you reflect Christ in those kinds of ways. As a husband, as a parent, as a worker, as a brother, as a friend, these all reflect Christ in some way. And, and in that calling, it would be folly to grab glory for ourselves. For the couple at front, up front at their wedding, to begrudge talking about Jesus at their wedding, because it's their day. That's folly. No, you're a picture of Christ. For the husband to, to demand that his children submit to his authority when he won't submit to Christ's authority. That's folly. No, instead, we take joy in being a pointer to Jesus. So if we try to grab the center for ourselves, the joy will disappear. But if we delight ourselves in exalting Jesus in all that we do, then our joy is fulfilled. So rest content in your calling while diligently fulfilling it. That's the surest way to exalt Christ, as John does here. Now, John says quite a few things about Jesus. We come to that next. Uh, beginning around verse 28, and also just as an aside here before we jump into point two, uh, right around verse 30 and 31, there, there's this discussion. You may have a quote at the end of verse 30, a quote mark. You may not. We don't know, really, in, if in verses 31 to 36, if that's John the Baptist who keeps talking, or if that's John the Gospel writer uh, who picks up with some commentary. Uh, doesn't matter a great deal, but, it's, but you may see some differences in translation there that you may wonder about. Well, John says several things about Jesus. The first one is that Jesus is the groom at the wedding. We've hit that a bit already. We read from Isaiah 54, uh, where God uh, says through Isaiah, Israel, your maker is your husband. As a wife... Uh, that has been left, shall now be taken back. Uh, Isaiah 62 says this as well. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God shall rejoice over you. Uh, Psalm 45 is a wedding song to the king who marries, and it's talking about Jesus. Jesus is that king. All kinds of examples. Uh, one to consider, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. The, the law that God gives, the Ten Commandments, uh, the Ten Commandments and really the whole Mosaic Law, in one sense, they function roughly as the wedding vows between God and his people Israel. Put the first four commandments in that setting and you get the idea. Right? No other gods before me. The husband and wife are called to forsake all others and be devoted only to one another. No pictures of any created thing. God doesn't want us lusting after things he has given us instead of loving him himself. That third commandment, don't bear God's name in vain. When you marry, you take the name of your husband. The fourth commandment, spending time with God on the Lord's day. Every marriage needs regular time spent together. So God is the groom. Israel is the bride. That's the point of this. And now take all of that Old Testament imagery and notice what John is doing in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Jesus, as bridegroom, puts him, puts Jesus, in the place of God in the Old Testament imagery. It's a bit of logic here again, right? Premise one, God is Israel's husband. Premise two, Jesus is Israel's husband. Ergo, conclusion, Jesus is God. Here's another example where 
the cults will always tell you Jesus, the, the Bible never uh, asserts that Jesus is God. Well, it, here's an example where the scripture is actually doing that. But it's, it's not just stated in a proposition. You've got to know some Old Testament uh, imagery to know what Jesus, uh, what John the Baptist is claiming here, what scripture is saying. Jesus is God. He's the, he's the bridegroom of Israel. The one who has the bride. That's Jesus. Uh, second thing about Jesus, uh, verse 31 and 32. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth. Here's a point John has made before several times. Uh, Jesus is from above. He's come down from heaven. He's utterly different from John. Which is interesting, notice, because they were cousins. They, they uh, have the same kind of ministry at first, Jesus and John the Baptist. They're both baptizing. They're both preaching repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. Very, very similar looking in one regard. Uh, but no, uh, John the Baptist himself makes the difference. Uh, I'm from the earth. He is from above. Makes all the difference in the world. We've mentioned that before. We'll move on. The third thing that, that uh, John says about Jesus here, verse 33 and 34. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. He whom God has sent utters the words of God. I am reading the wrong verse. Sorry. Uh, it's the end of verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. That's the third thing. No one receives his testimony. That we saw this back in uh, verse 11 of chapter 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, We speak what we know, we bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If you page back to chapter 1 in the famous prologue, you have the same idea in verse 11 of chapter 1. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Amazing. Amazing. Now, have to be careful here. No one receives his testimony. And then the beginning of verse 33, but right the very next thing in chapter 3, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. So you uh, careful with too much grammatical literalism here, right? It, it, this would be absurd if you took it uh, literalistically. No one receives his testimony, but whoever does, what? I thought no one did. So it, we say that, that at the, when, when John says no one receives his testimony, it's a, it's a literary device of exaggeration saying it's amazing how few people receive this testimony. It's widespread rejection. It's amazing. It would be like Henry Ford coming to one of his factories and being run off by his workers. What? This is the beloved Henry Ford. These are his Model Ts. This is his factory. What are you doing? And they run him off. That's, that's crazy. How can that happen? So the shock and the surprise is part of that too. No one receives his testimony. So that's the third thing about Jesus. We have to not be surprised when many reject the claims of Christ. Fourth thing about Jesus is that he is given the Spirit without measure. Given the Spirit without measure. That's verse 34 and 35. These verses are a bit tricky to, to grasp grammatically, but uh, he whom God has sent, Jesus... Jesus utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And it's a little tricky to know who's the he that's giving the Spirit. Is that the Father, or is it the Son? Is it both? It, and 
just pause a minute here to remember one of the principles of reading the Bible. If, it, if ever something is unclear, look around in the rest of the context. Scripture interprets Scripture. There are plainer parts of Scripture that will help you understand the more confusing parts, right? In this example, the very next verse helps us. The 35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Well, one of the things the Father has given into the hand of the Son is the Spirit. And the Spirit then uh, pours out, uh, yes, Jesus then pours out the Spirit upon the church. So the fourth thing about Jesus is that he's given the Spirit without measure. So uh, we are being given that Spirit without measure. With the Old Testament prophets, there was a measuring. There was the Spirit given, right? The Spirit rushed upon Samson, on David. Uh, and, and so on. One of my favorite examples of that measuring of the Spirit is Elijah and Elisha. Uh, maybe I'll go into detail on this later, but in the book of Kings, Elijah is recorded as having done seven miracles. And when Elisha takes over, Elisha asks for a double portion of the Spirit. And God gives it to him. So then the story goes on, and if you count the miracles, Elisha does 13 miracles. And then he dies. And if you're counting, you're wondering, wait a minute, I thought he was going to get a double portion. Where's number 14? That's kind of how a, a Hebrew reads the Old Testament. Well, there's that obscure story where they bury Elisha, and then the next funeral comes along, and they, they, some raiders come in the middle of the funeral, so they quick throw the body into Elisha's tomb, and the man is resurrected as soon as his bones touch Elisha's bones. And that's miracle 14. A double portion of the Spirit. Crazy uh, story. But again, pointing out, even if you're dead, God can use you uh, to, uh, to do His will. And His Spirit will revive and work in the world around you. So, uh, you, that kind of measuring that was going on in the Old Testament. Jesus surpasses all the prophets. He has the Spirit without measure. No point counting the miracles. He's, he's been doing them since the world began. So this is talking, first of all, in verses 34 and 35, uh, not about us getting the Spirit, but about the Father giving the Son the Spirit. It's true also, of course, we either have the Spirit with us or we don't. That's one of the things being said here, I think, as well. But don't miss that point, that the Father gives the Son the Spirit to give to us. Uh, we see that at the beginning of uh, Revelation as well, same author, so it's not a big surprise. But the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to his son to give to the angels, right? That, that giving from father to son is all over uh, scripture, especially John. Uh, so the last thing here is that the father loves the son. That's verse 35. He's given all things into his hand. And just to make the point how that relates to us again, that is why we are saved. Because the father loves the son. Remember the story of Lot being rescued from Sodom? It's like that, right? It's because God set his love on Abraham that he decided to rescue Lot from Sodom. That, that's made quite clear in, in the passage. A, a few years back, uh, my sons were playing soccer, uh, and I asked one of them this morning, they didn't remember this story, so I hope I'm not making it up. I, I remember this anyway. Their team had an interesting thing happen once. Uh, the kids were talking about heading the ball into the goal. That how awesome that is to do. And the coach was walking by, and he said, hey, look, if any of you heads the ball into the goal today, 
for our next practice, there won't be any drills, no running, all just scrimmage. If you could head the ball into the goal today. Well, one of the kids on the team did it. And so one of my kids was there, the other one uh, was sick. So uh, they didn't head the ball into the goal, but they got the benefit the next practice of not having to run themselves to death and they just got to play scrimmage. The other one was sick, he wasn't home, he wasn't anywhere close, but he got the same benefit. That's how it is uh, with us, with Jesus. Jesus earned the prize for you. You're getting in on the coattails of somebody else, on the coattails of Jesus, not on your own merit. We really have to get used to that idea because it's not going to change. <laughs> Too often we think, oh, I got going on, on the coattails of Jesus, but now, now I've got to do it, and it's up to me. No, it doesn't change. Uh, too many of us are still running around on the field trying to earn the prize. No, stop trying to earn the prize. Our team captain has won the prize already. Now, that doesn't mean we leave the field, right? The game's still going. We still have the, the game to play. We have plenty of service to do, work to perform in our callings. Accepting Christ's work doesn't mean that we stop trying to obey God ourselves. But, but you are in the Father's loving hands because he loves his Son. Not because of your clear conscience. You're not favored by God because of your high principles. You're not favored by God because of your correct theology. It's because the Father loves the Son. Because of that, he chose you in him. So, that's some of the things here that Jesus, that John is saying about Jesus. The last point is the last verse, verse 36, privilege or peril. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I always... Uh, chuckle a little bit. Uh, maybe it's uh, the wrong kind of chuckle here, but uh, notice the Bible writers, they felt no need to end on a positive note sometimes. Right? Here you have this most famous chapter of the Bible, God so loved the world, verse 16. Right? And the very last phrase of this chapter is, the wrath of God remains on him. It's like the book of Revelation also. There's an awful lot of judgment in that last book of the Bible. They felt no need to end on a positive note necessarily. The evangelist is still pounding away at the same theme. You must believe Jesus came from God, that he was lifted up on the cross for your sins. If you don't believe in Jesus, you are condemned. All of humanity stands on a, on a razor's edge. Either God's wrath is on them or his love. There's no middle ground where we can shrug our shoulders and shuffle along through life. Many people appear to do this and try to do this. And the wrath of God doesn't always look like fire and brimstone raining down from Sodom and Gomorrah either. Romans 1 says that God, uh, when, he, when, when we are judged by God, he gives us over uh, to our desires. So for a time, God's judgment sometimes looks like just letting us have what we want. That's a scary thing. I, I think that what, one thing that means is that God's judgment is already upon us as a nation. Because he's giving us the things that we want that are destroying us. That's a sobering thought. A desire to, to choose abortion. Public perversion. If it means keeping our freedom. That's what we want. Leaders unable to reason morally. Misleading their people into a confusion of narcissism. 
awash on the drifting tides of personal desires. You are in a position of privilege or peril, this verse says. Danger or delight. So be careful. Uh, Avoiding pride is critical at that point. When we realize the privileged position we've been given, when we see people around us under the judgment of God destroying themselves, that is a time to watch out especially for uh, pride, uh, avoiding pride and rejoicing instead at the privilege that God has given us. So, people of God, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Take him as the husband of your heart. Rest content in your callings and speak of the greatness of Christ as Spurgeon did. And we exalt Christ together. Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for this word. Thank you that you have revealed to us so much about your son Jesus, the glories, the greatness of him. Thank you for the picture of Christ as our bridegroom. Let us know the greatness of this of this picture. Lord, as we are uh, aware of the, the compassion, the intimacy, the sympathy involved in marriage relationships, how they are supposed to be. We thank you, Lord, for uh, this picture that uh, we are united with Christ. We have our needs met in him. Lord, let us not turn away, but let us uh, remain devoted uh, in relationship, in faith and trust to our Savior, Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. And we pray and say as we trust. For a communion exhortation, we're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And skipping down to verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we all partake of the one bread. This table is like the water from the rock, like the manna. It's the same spiritual food from Christ that Israel had. This table is like John the Baptist. Both John and this communion table have the same purpose, to point us to Jesus. Both are in a subordinate role to Jesus. It's possible for us to appreciate both, but still not go to the one they point to. Many are baptized, get a taste of Christ in preaching at the Lord's table, but their hearts remain unchanged, and their lack of faith and obedience becomes clear over time. This table is meant as a window, not as a mural. We are to look through it to Jesus Christ and his grace and strength. We don't look at it, but we look past it to Jesus. I don't know if you've ever had it. Many times we are comforted at the flaws and the hiccups in a worship service, right? Like when I goofed up again this morning and was going to sing the Lord's Prayer at the wrong time. 
that there's a little bit of comfort in knowing, oh, the worship leader, the pastor, he's real too. He, he goofs up too, right? And there's a place for that. that. That's right. But if we're focused on the dirt on the windshield, then we aren't looking at the road, right? The worship service is the windshield. We're supposed to look through it to the way, the truth, and the life. It, I'm often grieved in those very moments when you're kind of chuckling or I goof something up because now the focus is on me instead of on the Lord. Anyway, small thing. It's more important to see the way, the truth, and the life, to see Jesus, than to focus on the details of the service and of the table. So this table, this is not a visual destination. It's not a stopping point. It's meant to carry our heart, our thoughts, our souls beyond itself to our Lord for true communion with him. So let's receive Christ and rest on him alone for salvation today. We do invite you to the Lord's table. All those baptized and under the authority of Christ and his church, his body, uh, come and welcome. By eating the bread with us and drinking the wine, you're acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God, that you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. So come with your children and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.